Well, good morning and welcome back to the church premises and in particular to the Kids Kingdom Room. This is one of our Sunday school spaces and I've chosen this location because I'm loving the blackboard behind me and what we can do with it that I normally can't do on other Sunday mornings. We are in week eight of a sermon series that we've been in which is titled Ascend. And as we explore that further today, I'll ask you to get your Bibles and open them up to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, that's cool. The words will be on screen and other Bible verses will appear throughout this broadcast. But if you do have a Bible, I do encourage to have that open and to interact with the pages as much as you can. We will read that together shortly. Now, this series has been built around three very different concepts of ongoing upward motion. Uh, in the way that we live out our Christian lives. It's ongoing upward motion in our lives. Um, the first three chapters have called us to an ongoing motion of what I'm calling looking up. We've been presented with a heap of theology and, and rich understanding of the power of God and, and the supremacy of Christ and the work of the Spirit all in this stuff. And, and uh, there's high praise and there's worship coming out of, of, of uh, Paul as he uh, reflects on all these things. And, and all of that just calls us to understand the Lord better and to look up to who he is and what he does for us. It's amazing as we do that. The first three chapters call us to look up. Chapter 4 is beginning to show us the motion of stepping up and we're seeing how that is playing out now. Stepping up is framed around Paul's invitation. We see it here. To live a life worthy of our calling that is in Christ. We've seen so far that this sense of worthiness is expressed in some major ways and we see them on the board here. We have humility, we have gentleness, we have patience and we have enduring love. These are major traits very early in the, place, in the play that we need to have down if we want to pursue this worthy life that Paul tells us about. Uh, with these in play, we're then called to work for unity. To make every effort for unity in the spirit with the bond of peace. And then we saw last week that unity or oneness is demonstrated in a number of ways. Paul offers seven examples of how that goes. Now, some have said, well, seven is the number of complete, therefore that's all of it. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, some have suggested this was a creed that was just simply quoted. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, we do have seven very extensive ideas here of how unity in the spirit does play out. And um, this, is what they, uh, this is what it looks like. We've got one body. We have one spirit, one hope, one Lord. That was big for the people of Ephesus to understand. Uh, one baptism. That's a biggie, even today. Uh, one faith. We, we all have, we're all solid at the core of what we believe. 
and one God, of course. You know, we've got a polytheistic group in, in Ephesus there, and they're being challenged here to understand that there is just one true God, and we worship and we serve him alone. This is a Christ-shaped unity that has been described here. It's something that goes well beyond the vision statement of a local congregation. It's more exciting than that. I think it's fair to stress this point here, that these sorts of vision statements that we have in congregations um, aren't all that helpful if we haven't got unity in the spirit down first. And then we see something amazing. From the strength of Christ-shaped unity, powerful, effective, diverse ministry will flow. Diverse ministry will flow. I love that. We're going to read now about that exciting diversity today. Uh, this passage that we're reading today is actually going to take us a few weeks to flesh out in the detailed way that I feel it deserves. Uh, in fact, the title of this series, Ascend, has been inspired by this particular passage. This is a centerpiece because I think the Lord is going to show us some amazing things in starting today and in the weeks to come. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. From the position of unity, generous favor from God, grace, becomes an empowering and an equipping force. This unity we've explored takes us away from the individualism of the world. It shakes that stuff out of us. It, it, it purifies us. And instead, we come into this place where the only agenda that matters is the one that Christ our head has in mind. So instead of getting all the worldly power we can, we lean into the equipping power that Christ gives us, no matter what it is or how much we perceive it to be. Jesus extends generous grace on his sovereign terms, and we walk in the power of whatever he equips us for. And if the Ephesians needed any convincing of the value of this grace or the value of these gifts, we are shown here a powerful image of the supremacy of Christ. Jesus is described here as the one who descended. The various translators over time have had to do some heavy linguistic work with this. So some like the King James Version speak of Jesus descending to the lower parts of the earth. Now the message goes with the valley of the earth and our NIV today calls it simply the earthly regions. This could speak simply of Christ's earthly ministry or it could speak specifically of Christ's burial in anticipation of resurrection. 
Both can actually work here because the Ephesians had beliefs about the powers of the air or the atmosphere around them, which were hostile to God, as well as beliefs about the powers of the underworld, which were hostile to God. Uh, And Artemis, of course, was actually among the deities who held sway in their mind among both realms. Now, I personally lean towards the more earthly, atmospheric tone more than the grave, given what Paul has already written so far. And if this is true, then the main point Paul is looking to make here is that Christ ascended. This has already been celebrated in chapter 1. Christ rose and is now seated at God's right hand, ruling over powers and dominions for all time. Through the death and the resurrection, all things are under Christ's rule already. All things are under his feet. Our future hope in 1 Corinthians is that the last enemy of death, uh, that death itself, will also end up under the feet of Christ. To drive this idea home, Paul quotes a version of Psalm 68 here. This is a prayer acknowledging the power of God, and it's a prayer that is asking God to defeat the enemies of his chosen people. In verse 18, which is quoted here, we see a word picture of God ascending to his throne after conquest with gifts for his people being left in his wake. The idea is that God conquers for his people and he leaves the spoils for those he defended to make use of. This is a powerful image of God's conquest in the psalm and Paul is then seeking to convey this about Christ's conquering work of the resurrection and in this case, the ascension as well. The the Ephesians here are getting a lesson on the supremacy of Christ over all that they had left behind in their previous pagan lives. And they're also being reminded of the privilege it is to have the gifts that Jesus left behind for them to use. In this lesson and this reminder, we see three key things for ourselves. First, that Jesus is ascended and and he is seated in power over all. Second, that Jesus is the conqueror who in his ascent leaves generous gifts for his liberated people. And third, these generous grace gifts are to be taken up by all and used by all in service to others. The unity we have in the Spirit brings us to community. The diversity we're called to walk in then brings us to service in that community. And also from what extends out of that community also into the world around it. Our passage then goes on to name these generous and diverse gifts. And I'm going to read that out for you now just to ponder these gifts afresh. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So Christ came to earth, defeated our foes through the resurrection, 
ascended to heaven to take up his throne once again. And in grace, he left us spoils of war, five specific service gifts. They equip God's people for service. They equip God's people uh, towards maturity or completeness. They promote and they protect the important elements of unity. And they help us to grow more and more like Christ. And as I'll seek to demonstrate over the next few weeks, these generous gifts are a lot more widespread than what we might leave to paid clergy or search committees to find. These are present all throughout the church. We need to remember here that this letter is written by an apostle in lockdown to churches which might have only had around a dozen people each. And these gifts are still in their midst. Even in our socially isolated settings right now, these gifts are present. Look around your lounge room right now. It's my conviction right now that the Ascension gifts are there. Why don't you look around? Take stock of the people in your room right now or on your viewing party right now. And look with the eyes of the Spirit as, as to what gifts may already be in action or potential at least in the lounge rooms and in the spaces you are right now. Now, as I indicated earlier, this series has been titled Ascend because of this passage. I believe this is going to be a key portion of what we as a congregation are going to pick up the most out of our journey in Ephesians at this time. For this reason, I'm going to take a little bit of extended time to explore these gifts with you. And as we do this, I'd like to issue a quick encouragement to all of you right now. Please don't write yourself off so quickly as we do this. Uh, we've been somewhat trained to think of these five gifts as things that only a few in the congregation do. Uh, we've hired trained professionals to do these Ascension gift roles. And there's definitely scope for this in practical terms on the ground as well as in Scripture. I'm heavily trained and I'm paid by the church and I believe I'm a valid part of what is happening in this passage and in practical terms. But I do fear that over the years, entire congregations have outsourced their own part in this. Uh, and this is not in keeping with the Great Commission, I believe. There is a school of scholarly thought which describes these as the top jobs, as it were, in the church. And there is a more recent body of work that upholds its presence in all believers. I have personally arrived at the position that both are true. And both are to do their function in order for the Great Commission to keep going in our modern setting. My reasoning for this is that we're told Jesus apportions or distributes the gifts. I believe some are gifted in a larger way in order that they can be set apart for this purpose and spend their time imparting into others what they know to do. These are often the ones like me who are employed to do what they do and are set apart for that purpose. I also believe that these gifts are present in all of us to some degree so that those with the larger distribution can ensure those gifts are being activated across the congregation. If we leave it to the apparent experts or leave it to the paid professionals, we'll actually do the church a great disservice. 
So I pray that you would dare to ask the Lord this question, if it's not clear already. Which one of these gifts am I? What gift do I have? And in what measure has Jesus apportioned that gift to me? We're going to start exploring these gifts now. Uh, last week, I spoke about the element of one faith. And I encouraged you to consider the core elements of your faith. Uh, and I'm going to lead by example here today and begin with the perceived core elements of these gifts based on my experience in Baptist ministry. <laughs> in other words, I'm actually going to go through this list of gifts in reverse order. For these last few minutes together, we're going to briefly explore the gift the gift of the teacher. Jesus' own ministry was all five gifts in perfect tension, I believe. But his teaching work was carried out in the way of the rabbis of the time. Uh, 90% of what we read of Jesus' ministry um, was time and instruction spent with just 12 people. Although all five gifts are in operation, we see a very good plan for how life is to be for believers here. Uh, they are first and foremost disciples, learners, L-platers, um, or the word that the late great Dallas Willard loved to use, apprentices. This is an ongoing posture in our lives. You know, Christians learn and Christians teach. The Great Commission in Matthew 28 was far more than just go and get people to say a sinner's prayer. Uh, it was go and make disciples and teach and baptize them. To find willing learners and be willing to instruct them uh, and lead them into kingdom community. That's what the Great Commission is. Teaching and receiving instruction is a key element of our faith. Uh, Colossians 3 gives us some great encouragement about the general way that Christians interact. And we see something cool in verse 16 here. It says this, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Galatians 6, 6 tells us this, Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. So there is this atmosphere of teaching and learning that is always going on among believers. It's a cultural element of the church. Uh, we all learn things about our faith. We discover various things and we impart that into others who don't know that just yet. There is this ongoing culture of teaching and learning. Hebrews 5 verses 11 to 14 is a passage also that speaks deeply into this idea of shared ministry. Um, and this is a key passage, I believe, for all believers to consider. It says this, We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. 
Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. The writer of Hebrews is fully expecting here that his audience is supposed to be able to instruct others. Apparently, enough time had gone by um, that would cause the writer to have that conclusion. And yet we read here that despite expectations, this congregation is still needing instruction themselves. And the writer of Hebrews is clearly not uh, not very happy about that. (laughs) I've become convinced, friends, that all believers are to be active in teaching others because that's what discipleship is. I believe a healthy congregation is one where all its members are able to impart instruction uh, to other people and not leave it all to the paid professional to get it done. Um, I would go as far as to say that the ones who are perhaps exempt from teaching others are those who shouldn't just yet, the infants, the ones still working out what it is they actually believe. But even then, experience has shown me that even the youngest in our faith can share surprisingly profound things because of what the Spirit is doing in their life and showing them. But we also see in Scripture an apparent key position in the church that is called a teacher. Uh, The teaching role in that light is the function of explaining and passing on Christian tradition and doctrine. Uh, It is making plain the things taught from the Old Testament, from the teachings of Christ, from apostolic doctrine and and working those things through with diligence. Uh, It is deep interaction with Scripture and how it pertains to Christian living. It's reflecting and reconciling how Scripture is applied when it intersects with the culture it finds itself in. Some have presented the pastor and teacher as an inseparable ministry. But I firmly believe that's not necessarily the right conclusion. Uh, Pastors certainly should be able to teach. We know that. Uh, Among the qualifications for eldership in 1 Timothy 3 is the ability to teach. Uh, In Titus, elders are supposed to be able to uphold and defend sound doctrine. They need to know what they know. But those with a teaching gift in this larger portion, as it were, quite often stand alone. Um, or they hold a different secondary gift other than the pastoral one. Those who know me well will know that this is definitely true with me. It's quite common for teachers to be not all that pastoral. Sometimes scriptural engagement means we indeed can't be all that pastoral about it because it can muddy the water a little bit. If teachers err on the side of of the pastoral when it's not their gifting how people feel might get in the way of how the truth of scripture is to be left out sometimes teachers need to stand alone pastors most certainly need to be able to teach but teachers don't necessarily have to be pastors in other places, the office of a teacher is a bit more of a lonely road. Uh, James 3.1 tells us this. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. 
It is also named alone as a spiritual gift in Romans 12, as well as here in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 28. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. So out of this, we have some really cool things to consider together this morning. Uh, we see that there is a key role in the church for a teacher, uh, and there is a everyday function of teaching going on as part of our discipleship journey. And I want to, would like to ask some questions to help us reflect on this role in our lives, um, what the Lord might be calling us to, things like that. Uh, my first question is this, are we infants or are we adults? Um, if we are new to faith, then that would make you an infant, uh, a, a new person in the faith. Um, your faith is still growing, and I would encourage you to um, wear your L-plate with pride. Uh, do the time and the study and the growing and the fellowship and all that stuff that you need in order for your faith to take hold, to, to uh, get a root system and to, to um, build up in the way it needs to. Um, I would also reflect a bit here for those of us who have been around a bit longer. Um, Hebrews 5 is a sad story of discipleship not quite right. And, and there is this journey that the writer wanted them to be mature enough to teach others, but found it to be otherwise. And maybe some of us have been around a while, and, and, but really should be deeper than we are at the moment. Um, maybe the Spirit is, is, is graciously nudging you about that and calling you into deeper waters of what you believe and what you know. Eventually, all believers need to get to a point where they can teach somebody, but maybe you know that it wouldn't be right for you to do that simply because you're not there yourself. Look, can I encourage you to get into that space? And I would ask you to to bravely find some people and ask them for some accountable instruction. Um, whether it be somebody local in a small group thing or, or a pastor or a leader, depending on where you're coming from, find somebody near you who is more mature than you are and, and ask them to teach you some things about what you need to know in your faith. If you have gone, yeah, I'm an adult, I'm mature, I'm good, awesome. Who's your apprentice? 2 Timothy 2.2 says to pass these things on to other people so that they will pass it on also. There's a perpetual journey of discipleship and teaching that's in play in Scripture. Uh, what is stopping you from teaching other believers about the faith that you have? Um, if you have some maturity in you, then you have something to share with others. I want to encourage you, find some infants, make some apprentices, bring some people under your wing and instruct them with the things that you have. What you have is desired and needed by other people. So walk in that and instruct some other people. This is the journey of discipleship for all of us, to go on to make disciples ourselves. To those of us in house churches, you know what? We'll all be kept on our accountable toes if we allow new believers to be in our settings uh, and to do that on a regular basis. Um, I personally need newer believers in my life because I need them to help me be sharp. I need them to keep me aware of how the scriptures speak to those newer in faith. Um, I need those people to help me understand how the scriptures speak to culture as a whole. I need the new believers to keep me sharp and so do you. 
I would encourage you to put some newer believers in your midst so that you are actually imparting some stuff to those people also. It's a good thing to do. It keeps us all sharp and it's an amazing thing. And my last question is this, are you gifted for bigger things? And are you pursuing that? This is a big call to pursue and it brings us into a whole different realm of growth and accountability. But it's a worthwhile journey to those who know they're called to do it. Um, For some, bigger is a house church leadership role where you are a teacher, the lead teacher of a house church setting. Maybe you've been resisting that because you're worried about not being pastoral enough. That's okay. I'll speak into that part next week. For others, bigger might be theological study. We partner with Alpha Crucis College and we have a very cheap certificate for journey that you could be going on with us. Uh, there are other ways and online means for you to get some really um, deep and rigorous uh, theological study under your belt. Um, if you are doing that, let me help direct you with that and, and guide you in pursuing that a little bit deeper in your life. There might be others who are looking for ways for this larger call to express itself outside the church, and that is valid very much also. Um, if you're looking for one way to look, maybe something like the world of apologetics might be your thing. You know, this is considering how scripture and the public square intersect and how we might speak into those things. Um, you know, the world needs teachers also. The journey of discipleship, making, bringing people into the seeker realm is also an act of teaching too. And we need ascension gifted people who can teach inside the church and outside of it also. So maybe the Lord is stirring you about that. That is also valid. It's not necessarily who fills a pulpit. It's about who is teaching the things of God to those in the church and equipping those outside as well. I'm going to pause at this time. I'm going to leave those three things on the screen for you to pause to pause and ponder. Maybe the Lord wants to, uh, to, uh, to, to speak to your life about that. Um, as these are on screen, look around your room today also and consider who in your space right now could be someone with the gift of teaching or someone who actually has a wealth of knowledge that they could be imparting in others. Maybe you can encourage one another in your own little spaces right now with about the teaching gift and how it pertains to you guys as a household or a viewing party this morning as well. So let me put these on screen and why don't you reflect on these things and I'll come back and I'll pray in a moment. Lord Jesus, you extend grace and it saves us. Not through works, but grace are we saved. And then today we learn that this grace not only saves us, but it equips us and it empowers us and it calls us into the realm of service. And we see that as a gift given to us out of your favor towards us. That's amazing. It's remarkable that you will call us to these things, Lord. Help us to see the privilege it is to serve to operate in these gifts that you call us to, to see these things as gifts that you have given us in the church for us to be able to flourish and grow to maturity and more and more like you. Lord, as we consider the teaching gift, I pray that you would, Lord, be speaking to us all about first the need for instruction in our own life, 
For those of us who have been avoiding that, I pray you would call us back to that. I pray that you would show us people who could be apprentices under us, people under our wing that we could be instructing in this time. And I pray for those called to perhaps something a little bit more formal or accountable in this. Those with the ascension gift of a teacher in their life. Those called for pulpit ministry, for outside ministry, for, uh, for uh, house church ministry, for theological study. Those things, Lord, I pray that you will be quickening uh, them about what to do next with that, Lord. And I pray your grace would be all over them as they think about that. Lord, as we consider these gifts, I pray that they would build us up. And that we will become more and more mature as we avail ourselves of these gifts that are in our lives. And we thank you for them. And we thank you that they are given to us in grace. We praise your name and we commit to growing in these areas. We thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen.